Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Welcome to Forma, a new podcast from the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education, aesthetic wonder, and Christian community. I'm David Kern. If you're like most Christians today, you have experienced this at least once in your life. You know, the search for a church. You visit, you meet new people, you try out different styles of worship, maybe. Maybe, the, maybe different architectural things draw you. Maybe it's stained glass windows or a beautiful dome. Maybe you like the simplicity of a classic church out in the country with pews and a white cross on the roof. Maybe all your searching has led you to a church that's in a strip mall. We've all experienced this, whether it's looking for a new tradition or simply looking for a new community. Well, Brett McCracken's new book, Uncomfortable, The Awkward and Essential Challenge of Christian Community explores this idea, this, this experience. He says that it's easy to dream about the perfect church, a church that sings just the right song set to just the right music before the pastor preaches just the right sermon to a room filled with, you know, just the right mix of people who happen to agree with you on just about everything. But chances are your church doesn't quite look like that. But what if instead of searching for a church that makes us comfortable, we learn to love our church, even when it's challenging? What if some of the discomfort that we often experience is actually good for us? Brett's book is a call to embrace the uncomfortable aspects of Christian community, whether that means believing difficult truths, pursuing difficult holiness, or loving difficult people, all for the sake of the gospel, God's glory, and our joy. Brett is a friend of mine, and he's the senior editor for the Gospel Coalition, author of Hipster Christianity and Gray Matters, he also writes regularly for Christianity Today on his website, brettmccracken.com. 
He lives with his wife in Southern California, where he serves as an elder at Southlands Church. You may have heard him on a past podcast back on the old Quiddity show when we talked about uh, films. He has written for our magazine and contributed to the website on, on topics related to film, including on how to teach um, film viewing to our students, how to cultivate good film watchers. He is a great writer, a great cultural critic, and a really wise commenter on uh, modern Christianity. So I was really excited to have him come on to talk about this new book. I began by asking him a little bit about how he went from writing a book called Hipster Christianity when he was in his 20s to, to writing a book now about church and the way that a good church should make us a little bit uncomfortable. And this is what he had to say. It's a really good question. I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot myself, just reflecting as much as one can reflect <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. on these things. Um, you know, I think all three of my books have been in general about the same overarching topic, which is the church and culture and how the two relate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's been kind of the overarching preoccupation of my life as a writer, as a journalist in terms of film reviews and just my interest in pop culture and mm -hmm. Christianity and the church, yeah, which yeah. have both you know, they've both been kind of constant interest areas in my life. So that's kind of how I think they're all under that umbrella. Um, yeah. With hipster Christianity, it was, you know, me as a young 20-something Christian right out of college who was on maybe the one extreme of, like, engaging culture pretty much indiscriminately loving everything. And, <laughs> you know, I was, I was beginning my... That, those were the early days of my like arts and culture criticism, film reviews, all that. Right. And right. so, and yet even then, I I kind of recognized that there needed to be limits, and that there was actually harm being done when the church was trying too hard to be basically indistinguishable from culture and and how it engaged with it. Like too and hard so to fit in. Too hard to fit in. Yeah. Just and so much of my generation, you know, that I kind of observed when I was at Wheaton College is just there's this real like um, embarrassment or or d desire to distance ourselves from the legalistic kind of anti-culture or Philistine-ish culture of evangelicalism, which yeah. some of us had grown up within. Yeah. So I had observed that even in my own self of really wanting to kind of distance myself from that and maybe go to the other extreme of proving that, you know, one could be a Christian and, and also be conversant in the French new wave and Italian hmm. neorealism and yeah, yeah. You know, post-structuralism and all these things. So I, I had gone to that kind of hipster Christianity extreme myself. And yet I had this weird kind of self-awareness of it where I knew there were problems with it. And, and I had more and more thoughts about, kind of the critical aspect of that. And, and maybe this isn't such a good thing and maybe we're swinging too far in the other direction. Hmm. And so that's what led me to write hipster Christianity was, uh, I was in it, I was experiencing it. I had overlap with what I was writing about. And yet I wanted that book to be just a conversation starter, a challenge to the church to, uh, for those who were tempted as I was to, swing to the other extreme of um, cultural engagement where there was this just indistinguishable aspect um, mm -hmm. 
yeah, I don't, I didn't think that that was necessarily a good thing. So hipster Christianity is largely a critique of it. I mean, it's, it's basically making the case that we're, we're missing the point of Christianity. If we latch on to trendiness and kind of relevance to the current zeitgeist as its best asset, like that's actually like one of the weakest things we could do in an, in an ephemeral world where trends and things come and go, like to the extent that we attach Christianity to that, like, you know, how is that at all going to be appealing or transformative to our culture? We need to actually, not that it's an either or completely, but Mm -hmm. we do, we do need to recognize the, the, the core value of the church of Christianity in today's world is its transcendence is this, the way that it connects us far beyond our current zeitgeist mm. and the continuity of the church throughout centuries. And, and, um, so, you know, that was kind of hipster Christianity, uh, with gray matters. I was, it was more like a practical, like hands-on book where I was answering the question, okay, well, if we don't want to go to that extreme, like what's the middle ground approach? Yeah. Like how do we, how do we engage culture and the arts in a healthy way as Christians um, without going super far in the liberal kind of direction, but also yeah. not reverting back to what we were rebelling against in the first place, which is the legalistic kind of approach right. um, of, of sacred, secular, you know, a hard sacred, sacred, secular divide. So I, I think Gray Matters was, um, you know, all about the, the importance of moderation and nuance in this conversation and and ultimately um, learning how to consume culture, how to engage culture to the glory of God in an edifying way. Um, And then, yeah, I think the progression then from those two books to Uncomfortable is, I think Uncomfortable is like the, it's like the opposite of hipster Christianity in terms of Hmm. if, if hipster Christianity was driven, if that idea is driven by kind of an embarrassment about the church and a, a need to kind of, make Christianity more palatable and more relevant, more, you know, easily digestible in today's zeitgeist, in today's culture. Uncomfortable is basically arguing that counterintuitively, it's actually the the hardest things to stomach about Christianity, the challenging, the most challenging things, um, the cost of discipleship, all of those things that in the end are the most relevant things about Christianity. And if, if we're wanting to do what hipster Christianity tried to do in terms of making Christianity flourish and thrive in the 21st century culture, actually, we need to kind of just own, own the churchiness of church, own, yeah. the, own the cross, own the cost of discipleship, and, and focus on the essentials, um, which are, you know, not, not going to win— friends and you know it's not going to be um mr popularity right in today's world but it's going to create a stronger more fortified more vibrant and more true christianity that's closer to what you know new testament christianity is all about as we read scripture so that's kind of a long way to answer that question but that's kind of the journey that i think i've been on with the books so I've got lots of questions for you about uncomfortable specifically, but I'm as you were talking, I was wondering, do do you think that? Well, I guess when you were doing your early 
culture criticism. You know, you were writing for Christianity Today and Relevant and writing about yeah. movies and TV and all this sort of thing. Were you getting these questions? Were people asking you these questions? Either, like, were they saying, how can you be, so, how can you love movies so much and still be committed to the church? And then were they also <laughs> saying, you know, oh, you're being, it was the opposite also happening. Were you getting comments, people saying, oh, your review was, you know, you were being overcritical of this aspect of this movie and your faith was, like, not allowing you to see, mm. say, filmmaking properly. Uh, yeah. um, were you and so were you getting those questions, and then that was leading into these thoughts that you were having, that led yeah, to, that think, led to the books. I think so. I think I've always received those criticisms from both sides. Um, <laughs> when, you know, as a writer, <laughs> as yeah. a writer in the internet age, like you're going to get hit from every direction. Like it, <laughs> you just you have to have thick skin. But yeah. I think part of that part of the unique challenge of writing about art and culture as a Christian is that it's a, you know, people have strong opinions about it. It's an explosive yeah. topic. And, and we're so, kind of in yeah. a, the, I mean, like, I feel like we're in a, I don't want to say golden age because there's always been great Christians writing about art, but there's a mm. lot of really, really um, positive, I think, mm-hmm. conversations going on about uh, how mm-hmm. Christians should think about art, you know, yeah. and you're part of that. But there's a, it seems like yeah. there's a lot of great conversation going on, but it's also yep. challenging to be a part of that, I feel like. It is, yeah. I, I think it's definitely gotten easier to to be conversant in these areas as a Christian. There's no, there's no longer as much of a stigma maybe attached to mm. it. Yeah. Um, you know, but but there's still, you know, there's still challenges out there. And uh, any anytime you write a movie review particularly of like an R rated movie as a Christian, yeah. you know, you're going to, you're going to get the naysayers, uh, and vice versa. You know, I wrote a, I wrote an, a review last week or a few weeks ago about all saints, which is this faith based film. And it was actually decent. Like, you know, it was a lot better than the typical like faith based film. Mm-hmm. Um, and I gave it a, you know, pretty favorable review, but I did point out that it was, uh, you know, not the best aesthetically, and it still kind of had that like mediocre um, quality to it that is unfortunately rampant in a lot of faith-based filmmaking. And some of the comments were like, "Well, how could you say anything good about this? Like, we need to have higher standards as Christians aesthetically, and we we shouldn't be like giving a pass to you know films like this that are so terrible hmm. artistically." And I was like nodding and agreeing, like, "Yeah, like I agree with you, but we also need to not be so." extreme on one end or the other though we can't engage things in in the middle and say like you know this is this is good there's some good things about it and there's some bad things about it and you know that's the sort of like nuance that's just really increasingly rare in general in our culture yeah everything is so extreme everything is so absolute and there's you know anyone who wants to write at all with nuance about things it just there's not a lot of play sadly for that yeah um so it does that's the kind of writer i i try to be and you know gray matters was definitely a book that was trying to do that so it does feel like we're not very good i mean i, I guess this goes without saying we're not very good at just be lingering in the gray area and right. looking at context and things like that so the aesthetic thing mm. you know it's 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 theoretically possible that a filmmaker could it might maybe it doesn't have the the high quality feel because because of the limitations of the budget or whatever so 
it might not be exclusively that you have a bad artist. It might be that that there's an artist who's doing the best with what they can. So, mm-hmm. but we're not very good at it's at recognizing, you know, limitations. Right. We're not very good at recognizing context and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that you should excuse or you should say this is artistically good because of the limitations. Right. But you know, if we have people who are saying, how can you say anything good about something? That seems like yeah, right. Like how is that? That's not. A, we're not having a conversation anymore. No, it's counterproductive. Yeah. yeah. So, yep. speaking of conversations, the um, it seems like a big part of of uncomfortable. And I guess all of your books is like about how we have conversations about things in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Uncomfortable, it was maybe, I mean, in um, Gray Matters, it was maybe more about how do we engage with, with uh, the arts or how do we engage with alcohol or yeah. food or whatever. And it seems right. like in Comfortable, in, in Uncomfortable, um, it's about the conversations, it's about having conversations about how we live the life of the church mm-hmm. day to day. Would that be accurate? to say yeah i would say yeah it's it's about the church you know it's about how we deal with life in christian community and all that that entails well you you said something that i think is is really interesting because there's this there's a lot of conversation about this whole god is dead idea um Mm -hmm. it seems like that conversation has come back and you even had didn't time magazine come back with kind of an ode to that with a recent recent cover is Um, truth dead yeah right um, and you've got scads of Christian writers who are kind of touching on this theme, but you, you said that that actually might not be the worst thing or something like that. Like it's an, you put mm-hmm. it as there's an opportunity there in this idea of us mm-hmm. viewing it as our culture at large saying that God is dead. Um, mm-hmm. can you, can you explain that? Yeah. You know, I think that, um, as much as we kind of freak out and like lament about the um, decreasing numbers of Christians in America, if you look at like the Pew studies and the different surveys, it is true that year after year, the numbers of Christians, people who would call themselves Christians or church going Christians or whatever is going down. And, and I'm kind of taking the posture and uncomfortable that there's actually positives to that. And if in the sense that, Christianity in America is we're clearly entering a a post-Christian era, whatever you want to call it, an era when where it's not just a given that like you're going to be a Christian because you live in this particular state or this particular culture or the Bible Belt or whatever. Um, Christianity is increasingly going to be a choice, and it's it's no longer just going to be this kind of comfortable cultural attribute. And so there's going to be this natural winnowing or clarifying of what it means to be a Christian. And I think that's a good thing. And I think what my book is doing is adding to that conversation of, okay, well, now that we're in this season of people really needing to like choose and and, and actually um, decide to become a Christian, knowing that there's it's unpopular increasingly and it's it's increasingly countercultural to be a Christian. Like we need to be clear on what it actually entails, like and what mm-hmm. what it means to follow Jesus. And I'm basically arguing that everyone's going to be better off if we're just completely honest and upfront and kind of own the cost and the discomfort of it. And we kind of put away the illusions of somehow Christianity is just this comfortable, like cultural thing. Like 
get rid of that and just like be straightforward and authentic about, yeah, this is something that for 2000 years has been a costly thing where people are picking up their crosses as Jesus instructed his disciples to do and sacrificing in different ways. And, you know, that may look different for different people, but Mm -hmm. everyone needs to sacrifice something. And that's just a part of the deal with Christianity. And, and it's uncomfortable. So I'm really just trying to lay out kind of, in my view, the DNA of Christianity at a time when we're in a clarifying moment uh, in, in Western culture and American culture particularly. So, you know, in the, uh, maybe the introduction or the, the first chapter, you talk a little bit about how Christianity has become in some ways about rites and rituals. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm trying to see, I'm trying to think of exactly the way you put it, but it's more like Christianity flavor, I think was some, mm-hmm. was a word that you used, as opposed mm-hmm. to being um, about true belief and the supernatural and, or true belief in mm-hmm. the supernatural and, and the, the other things that the Bible presents right. to us. Right. Um, uh, how does the, how, I've got to, I want to ask you about non-Protestant churches at some point, but, yes. um, <laughs> particularly as relates to the idea of, as relates to the idea of rites and rituals, but, mm. um, to, in what ways do you think rites and rituals have become something that the the church at large in America in particular, or maybe, maybe more broadly the Western church has, um, turned into, into, um, like a faux Christianity, I think was another term that you used. How, how have we done that? In what ways would you say that that has become, um, become a major flaw in the, in the Western church? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the more ingrained Christianity becomes in a culture in terms of, um, just like the rites and rituals and just the habits of it, going to church on Sunday and doing the churchy things. Like I think naturally it has a tendency to become, more, um, more of just a, a, uh, yeah, just kind of going through the motions thing, um, where outside of that Sunday ritual, um, there isn't much else in your life that bears the mark of Christianity. And, and that's kind of, I think what cultural Christianity is. It's where people, people live their lives like basically pagans and heathens in every other day and activity of their lives. Oh, but they also go to church occasionally, or, you know, they, they go through these rites and rituals occasionally. And, you know, I think we, we've seen it in, in politics and the, the, the election and just the way that, you know, evangelicals has just become a political label for a voting block. And so Hmm. just the way that some sorts of Christians have, essentially they have, pagan views of politics and philosophy and just all these different things, even if they wouldn't call it that. Um, it just shows how little the actual like meat of Christianity has transformed people's lives holistically. Um, and, and so that's what I'm kind of getting at is there that Christianity is an all encompassing thing. It should alter, it should shake us up in everything and it the discomfort of it shouldn't just be about what we experience on Sunday mornings in a church that's part of it but it should also be 
how we live in the world and, and what it leads us to do or not do in the world that is going to set us apart and it's going to make things challenging. It's not going to make us popular because we're going to be different. Yeah. And so are we willing to do that, you know, or are the lures and temptations of comfort and just kind of living our American dream, are they more, is that more important to us? So that's kind of the question I'm posing. One of the things we talk about around here a lot is, you know, working with teachers in schools and stuff is, um, if, if we claim to be Christian educators, but then we don't actually teach in a way that is different, mm. then how are we, like, how can we claim that? So yeah, if, right. if, if we're teaching, but we're, but we're, you know, maybe we're teaching the Bible, but we're teaching it in a way that is the same as anything else, then are we really being teaching in a Christian way? Right. I mean, are we really Christian educators then? And it seems like you're speaking to something similar to that. Yeah. So how you talk, you mentioned the word authenticity a little bit ago, mm. how we need to be authentic about what the Christian faith actually demands of us. And mm-hmm. we need to live that out in a way that is, um, is true to the faith and true to like the true, true to the faith historically. Um, yeah even if that means that we're not going to be popular. Um, how does the idea of not worrying about being popular mesh with the idea of being um, mission-oriented, which is something you talk about in the book, um, with the idea that we want, obviously, people to come to our churches um, right. because we want to be able to present the gospel. We want to be able to to feed the people around us and so forth, uh, as, right. we're, as we're called. Um so, so how do those how does how do those those ideas mesh together? The idea of mm-hmm. being authentic to the faith um, and to the to what the faith truly demands of us, while also mm-hmm. being mission oriented and wanting people to be there. Because you talk about this, yeah. we've I think for a long time now, or a decade or so at least, there's been this idea of you know the seeker friendly churches, and um, it's become right. it's like it's almost the idea has almost become meaningless now because. It, right. You know, everybody says that they're a seeker-friendly church. Uh, it's, right. it's almost been stripped away of what it actually meant originally. So, right. so how do the, how, how do we ha- be actual seeker-friendly churches, but also authentic to the faith? Yeah, I mean that's a really that's a big tension that I thought about and wrestled with as I wrote the book because obviously we don't want to like. Um, make the the bar of Christianity so high in terms of the cost that no one is ever going to be interested in 21st century America. But, but then there's the other extreme, which is the, I think the more pervasive temptation in American Christianity, which is, which is the kind of inheritance we have from the seeker friendly movement and the, the mega church movement and mm-hmm. hipster Christianity, you know, all of that was really about making Christianity softer and more palatable, more relevant um, just an easier pill to swallow in our culture today. More buzzword and friendly. More buzzword friendly, exactly. Like the you know pastors who who say the right things and quote the right movies and music and <laughs> yeah. all that. Yeah. And I just think that like from personal experience and from just look, scanning the horizon of our culture and seeing what's happening in the church, I, I just don't think that works. And I think that. You know, people are savvy today. Like millennials are savvy. Like they they're not going to be duped into Christianity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Under the auspices that it's some sort of super cool, like hipster, you know, your best life now thing. Like, yeah. I, I I think people are smarter than that. So 
I don't think that's the route to go. And so what I'm arguing in Uncomfortable is just like, not that we need to swing to the opposite extreme and be like, this is like, you know, you're going to die. It's going to be like this horrible, like, you know, super terrible thing. Right. Like, it's not like that, but, you know, we just need to be honest about the fact that like, this is a faith of of self-denial. It's a, it's a faith of picking up your cross. Like, the cross is the central symbol of Christianity and always has been. What does that mean? Like, that's why I start the book off with the chapter on the uncomfortable cross, because mm-hmm. that frames everything else about Christianity. Like, there's a cost to it. Like, we know Christ in suffering. We know, we understand our faith better when we are experiencing trials and, and challenges. And, and when we're comfortable and when when we're somehow trying to experience or trying to sell Christianity as this comfortable experience, we're just missing a huge part of it. And so in terms of mission, I think we're not doing anyone any favors in terms of non-believers or, you know, people that you're looking to invite to church. We're not doing anyone any favors if we, if we bring them in under the false pretenses that, Oh, this is like going to be, making your life happier. It's, you know, it's this like therapeutic self-help, you know, whatever self-actualization. Yeah. Like that's actually not what this is about. This is, this is something that you need to know is gonna, it's gonna be a subversive life altering thing. That's going to stretch you in uncomfortable ways. It's going to challenge you in major ways. It's not going to just meet you quote where you're at and, and kind of give you a pat on the back for, who you are and and what you've done. Like, no, like, yes, Jesus meets us where we're at and in the sense that we're all sinners and he, you know, he loves us in spite of that, but he calls us to grow. And that's the uncomfortable part. He calls us to repentance and that's always uncomfortable. He calls us to do all of that in community, which is countercultural in today's world of isolation, where we kind of live in our own iPhone bubbles. Um, you know, the, the the communal aspect of Christianity is itself an inherently uncomfortable thing hmm. that we yeah. we we dare not go away from. That's why I hate like the podcast sermon idea and like the online church idea. Like I just think you're missing a huge part of Christianity in terms of the physical, communal, messy reality of people from all walks of life. You know, collectively spurring each other on in, in steadfastness and faith and growth yeah. and, and faith, hope, and love, you know, those things Paul talks about. So, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on, but that's, <laughs> I think mission is a huge part of this. And, and, and I wrote this book from a deeply missional place. Like I want, I want, I want the church to be doing the best thing it can be doing in terms of winning converts. And I, I honestly think that as counterintuitive as it may sound, like I do think, kind of emphasizing the cost and the discomfort in a strange way is going to feel authentic and appealing to people in today's world. Um, because they're, they're going to know that there's no BS here. We're not, we're not sugarcoating it. Like we're, we're being real with you. Like if you want your life to be transformed and you want your brokenness to actually become healing, like this is what it's going to take. It's going to be messy and costly, but this is what Jesus offers. Um, so I'll stop there, but <laughs> well, yeah. one, one of the, th- it seems like there's going along with that tension idea that you talked about. There is, 
you talk in the book about how emphasizing brokenness, which is sort of a trendy approach to building community, um, is almost like it's cool to be broken. You say that 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 emphasis, that approach is uh, wrong and not not biblical. Can can what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, again, this is like a a place where like nuance and like understanding the complexity of these things is helpful. Like, because on one hand, being honest about brokenness and being vulnerable about that is obviously a good thing in Christianity. Like, we need to be confessing our sin to one another and to be aware of it. What mm-hmm. I see happening, though, and what I'm kind of challenging in the book is almost like a putting brokenness on a pedestal where it's the currency of how we relate to one another. And it's, it's kind of like in our small groups where we, we kind of go around and everyone shares like, Oh, this is going on in my life and I'm struggling with this. And that's just all we do. We just go around the circle and kind of pat each other on the back for the brokenness and we're in solidarity. And, and yet it's the second half of what (laughs) needs to happen that we're missing, which is like, we can't stay there in our brokenness. Like we are a Christian community for the purpose of sanctification, for the, the Holy Spirit working through us as a community to build each other up, to stretch us, to grow us. Um, and so we shouldn't be just happy to be, to be where we're at in our brokenness. And we shouldn't view it as some sort of like currency of value where like, you know, so-and-so, oh, they're, I trust them. I, I, you know, I trust them more because they're so vulnerable about their brokenness. Like, yeah, like on one hand, I get that, but we also need to respect and value the person, the 55 year old couple in our church who have a great marriage and who have, you know, have, are living a virtuous life and have, they don't have any apparent kind of crazy sin or brokenness going on and no one's perfect, but right. I think, I think there's a sense of like, we've lost the beauty of, um, virtuous living and, and, and modeling our lives after the saints God yeah. has put in, in our communities who have walked a faithful route. And, and so I, yeah, yeah. I just, I think we're better off if we, if we can see the beauty and growth and transformation and not just uh, the beauty of honesty and vulnerability and our brokenness. Yeah, I was I was thinking about this recently because some of the some church traditions really emphasize the saints as models. Um, mm-hmm. The Catholic Church certainly, the Orthodox Church, certain Protestant denominations emphasize it more than others. Um, and, and it seems like we have lost, as a culture in general, mm. the the idea of the idea that there are people who are. I don't know, worth, worth emulating, worth modeling. Like, I don't know if it's right. just because we all, we all just want to emphasize, we all just want to emulate celebrities or whatever, but we don't, right. we don't, we're not very good at honoring people anymore. Um, yeah. why do you think that is? I mean, is it just this, the sort of the way the last 15 years have gone with social media and celebrity and, um, the rise of like 15 year old kids becoming huge celebrities mm-hmm. and we, and all every other 15, 15 year old kid wants to be like them or, or, uh, or is, you know, the rise of the sports hero as the celebrity or the, you know, I, where do you, th- what do you think that, why do you think that is? Yeah. I mean, I think, on, I think that's part of it in terms of the, maybe the luster and the kind of the, the idealistic view of heroes. We've lost some of that as we've seen 
you know, as we've seen sports heroes and people like fall from grace and even in the church, like there's been plenty of like pastors and people who have gotten caught up in scandals. So I think on one hand, it's, we're cynical, we're skeptical about, um, modeling our lives after other people. I think maybe a, a bigger part is actually just the, the way that we have just become so self-absorbed and narcissistic in terms of I am the only celebrity that matters in the world. Like my truth, my story, my authenticity, that's the only thing I need to care about. Like I'm going to forge my own path in life. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to be like anyone else. And I'm not going to model myself after any pattern. Like I'm going to forge a new, completely unique trail. Like that's, that's kind of the message that has been fed to our generation is you're totally unique. Like you, you should, you know, don't tell anyone you need to be a certain way or you need to like fit into any boxes, whatever. So we're very resistant, I think, to modeling after others, to imitating others. Uh, and yet the, the Christian life is like so much about imitation, like in modeling, like look at the new Testament. Like Paul says it so many times, like be imitators of me as I'm imitating Christ. Like, that's how Christianity got started is 12 disciples imitated Christ, their disciples imitated them and so on and so forth. Like for 2000 years, it's been generation after generation passing on Christ likeness by imitation and by modeling. And so I really want to push people and push churches that, you know, you don't need to be reinventing the wheel here. Like there's nothing new under the sun. Like, (laughs) It may sound basic, it may sound boring, but the best thing you can do as a Christian is to look to the faithful people in your context, in your church, who look like Jesus and who have been following after the people who came before them, who came before them, and just imitate them, look at their lives and listen to them and be like them. That's why intergenerational like community is so important. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think that's, you know, I'm preaching this Sunday at my church on First Thessalonians chapter 1. And, um, you know, Paul in that chapter, like, he, like, praises the Thessalonian church and says, like, you are the model church. You have, you know, and you become a model to other churches in Macedonia. And, and uh, it's, there's this whole theme of imitation that I picked up in reading that chapter and I I just more and more I'm seeing the beauty in that. Like we're not, we don't have to like blaze a new trail. Like we don't Mm. like each new generation of Christianity doesn't need to like reinvent it and breathe Mm. fresh air into it. Like we're actually better off if we like pay attention to who's come before and who's lived faithful lives before us. That's why, and I'm sure you can, you know, give a hearty amen to this, but that's why reading like old books and reading the Christian is so important like i'm i'm reading like a lot of basil right now and uh, athanasius and yeah early church fathers and it's so refreshing to kind of see the continuity and see you know they're dealing with things that i'm dealing with and we're i'm striving after things in my christian life that they were striving after and and so to learn from the wisdom of the past and not feel like my story and what I'm contributing is somehow more compelling. Like, yeah, I, I think we're better off being imitators and, and mm. not pioneers. Mm. Well, okay. So I'm going to wade into some murky waters here. Do you think that there is something about 
like at the core of Protestantism that inherently values the idea of pioneering. Because if you look at um, the Orthodox Church, for example, which claims it hasn't changed really, and you could look at the liturgies and stuff, and hasn't changed in 2,000 years, and Catholicism hasn't changed right. hardly at all for, for however many years, hundreds of years. Um, right. But Protestantism was born out of you know, reform, change, right. uh, revolution, some people would say, you know, I mean, just whatever word you want to use, different people, obviously, in the Reformation treat thought about it differently. Um, they they wanted to change things to varying degrees. But mm-hmm. so out of, or Protestantism, Protestantism is kind of born in that idea of being a pioneer. Do you think that right. plays into that, that a lot of Protestant churches have, I don't want to say that they they don't shake that that sort of inherent quality, but um, because in some ways it is good, but that 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 that's just sort of um, just kind of part of the Protestant DNA. Yeah, man. Yeah, this is murky water, but it's good because <laughs> I think you know we're in the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, so it's yeah. good to talk about this. You know, yeah, I think that the Reformation did start this spirit of pioneering that we're still experiencing. And I think over time it's become a lot more extreme than what the reformers had in mind. Like they were really, I think they were concerned with continuity ultimately. Like they wanted, they recognized this is, this is still the same church. Like we're, we're not inventing a new thing here. We're just correcting abuses and correcting things that had gone off the rails. Um, So it wasn't about, totally reinventing the wheel. Um, and so I think where yeah, we've gone yeah. wrong in Protestantism is now, now it's just become this pervasive spirit of like the minute you disagree with something, you can just start your own church or, you know, you know, that we need to always be, um, pioneering a new thing. And I think it's, it's kind of collided with, um, Western, um, just economics and like, uh, individualism and different things that are in the ether and society, uh, in terms of, um, yeah, just the need for something new and fresh all the time and the resistance to the past and continuity. But I think it's a both and like, we have to always be reforming the the church. The spirit is always working to purify the church and, you know, the, the narrative of scripture and in terms of the picture that we see in revelation of Christ returning for his bride is this idea that like the bride is being prepared. We, we are being perfected and purified and prepared for that ultimate day when Christ will return will the marriage will be consummated. So what that means is the church should always be in process and always be reforming. Um, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, are always throwing out what <laughs> came before us. Like, there's there's essentials there's things that need to be continuous and the same from generation to generation and so that's where we get into dangerous territory where you know and this is getting into even murkier waters but (laughs) on the issue of like sexuality like this is a dangerous moment for the church because it's an example of you know two thousand years of almost Christian history has believed that one thing about human anthropology and the meaning of gender and the meaning of sex. And now all of a sudden we think that, you know, the church got it wrong. And so we're just going to 
reform in that way and kind of change the church's position on this. So that's where it gets really dangerous, where the we kind of arbitrarily, you know, attach ourselves to the continuity in the past on certain things, but only where it's convenient to, you know, where we want. Like, um, yeah. we, we throw out the past on the issues that we don't like. Yeah. I mean, we could talk about that forever, but we have time limits, yeah. so we probably should. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot. I'm gonna. My final question, I guess, is, is related to. Um, it, I, I said that I was gonna ask about non-Protestant churches, and obviously, your tradition is Protestant. You grew up Southern Baptist, right? Grew up Southern Baptist, yes. And you're currently in a, a no, non-denom but Reformed basic tradition, right? Yeah, broadly Reformed, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so then I, I assume your primary audience is Protestant churches. Um, but, but we have a lot of listeners who are um, from the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox mm-hmm. tradition. Um, mm-hmm. I would wager probably pretty close to half of our listeners fit into some one of those categories, maybe a little less than yeah. that. So yeah. how does your book and these ideas that you're discussing in it uh, apply to to those traditions and you know those are traditions that as, as i've said are, are really don't fall into the flavor of the day trap mm-hmm. or the flavor of the generation trap i mean they do in some <laughs> ways certainly and they do right. do their best to appeal to seekers and things like that in various ways and each each you know church unit each parish or whatever you want to call it, is gonna is going to vary in that degree compared to other churches but right. um Given all that, are there some principles in your book um, and, and in these ideas that you've been thinking about and discussing that also will apply to these churches, mm-hmm. to the small Orthodox church or the maybe the, even the large Catholic church that's, you know, in a big city, you know? Um, yeah. What, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I tried to write the book um, with kind of a mere Christian approach to to the faith, Um Obviously, the language and kind of the examples I use, just given my background, it's going to swing a little bit to the Protestant side sure, of things. Sure, but, yeah. But, I mean, I, that book is actually has a very high ecclesiology, and which almost feels more Catholic at times. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I, yeah, I, I just have a very high view of the church and uh, church I, and tradition. I, I do think the book, I think that comes across in the book, too. And I, I don't, yeah. I wasn't suggesting that, you know, your book was not, Speaking yeah, no. to those other traditions as well, but yeah, I mean, there's a chapter on unity, which um, you know, that's that unity is something I'm I have a heart for in the church, and I I think that that the chapter is called uncomfortable unity, and I think that's one of the big challenges we face today as the church is really leaning into the discomfort of figuring out how we can be more united um, at a time when Christianity in general is under attack in our world. And this is not a time for digging in our heels and drawing lines necessarily. Um, I think we need to find areas of commonality because we're, we're all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the, we're, the, the faith is the faith is the faith ultimately. And I would say almost everything in the book is just core Christianity. It applies to any sort of Christian, um, whether it's the chapter on the cross or the chapter on Uh, mission or holiness or worship or, you know, any of these things, they're just, they're fundamental aspects of Christianity. And I would hope that 
this would be a book that was more unifying in, uh, than dividing in terms of Catholics and Orthodox and uh, Protestants can all agree that, yeah, like we're in this thing following Jesus that is uncomfortable, that is meant to be, to have some some teeth, to have some um, offensiveness, to have some cost in today's world. And we need to not be ashamed of that or embarrassed about that, but uh, to actually embrace embrace our identity um, in that. Were you ever tempted to, 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 I don't know how to put it, were you ever tempted to like make judgments about which modes of worship are better than others in this book? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about that. I'm not saying that you should like tell me which ones now, but was that ever a temptation for you as you were writing? Yeah, but then I would be I would be giving into the very thing I'm critiquing. The, <laughs> the, the comfortable thing in Christianity is to assert your pr- preference as the gold standard, but um, the uncomfortable thing is to accept that, that there's a diversity and that we we're better off if we um, can can find ourselves worshiping and valuing things even if they aren't our preferred style. So the the uncomfortable worship chapter I think is a really practical one for people in terms of dealing with their frustrations with music styles and worship styles and all that, because, you know, all of us have that, like no matter what church you're in, like I'm sure there's times where you're like, Oh, I wish we could do this differently. Yeah. And and, and so it's, but, but there's just such a value I found personally in like just kind of um, not, not throwing away my critiques or my suggestions for improvement, but just, giving myself over to worship, like, even if it's not my perfect style, like there's something freeing about that, like lifting the burden of self-focused consumerism, like, man, that's freeing. Like it's such a, it's such a freeing thing in today's world to actually not be so tied to the never ending pursuit of your perfect church or your perfect fit. Like when you give up that search and just say like, you know, there's never going to be a perfect thing for me. I'm just going to like release myself from that burden. Like, and when you just give yourself over to a community and commit, that's just a beautiful life giving thing. And ultimately that's, that's kind of the joy that I'm, I'm putting forward in this book on the other side of discomfort. There's delight in Christ Mm -hmm. and there's freedom and there's joy when we're not, when we're not just shackled to our narcissistic kind of pursuit of perfection and comfort do you think that the Christian church at large in the West has gotten better or worse when it comes to this idea of um, denying ourselves and making it less about us and more about Christ? The, you know, there seems like there is at times, or in waves, things will become popular again, like fasting maybe. You know, things mm-hmm. that, that, the, that the early Christian church did mm-hmm. routinely and was part of the 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 way they lived out their faith, you know, as a community, as a community. Um, and some, seems like some of those things will come in waves and be fads, things like fasting or whatever thing it could be. Do you think we've gotten that there is a, a better perspective on that or a worse perspective on that, uh, of late in the yeah. Western church? I think in, in some areas, maybe it's gotten better, but in some it's gotten worse. And, you know, the thing about it is like it, the, the challenge of, um, taking up your cross is going to be different for everyone. Like for some people like fasting is easy and it's actually like a cool kind of trendy thing to do. And, and it's not actually challenging your idols and your, your kind of addiction to comfort. 
Um, for other people, it is. And so what I'm kind of calling people to in the book is just to like examine, like, what are the things in your life that you're not willing to let go of for the cause of Christ? Like, it might be family, you know, and I talk about the the kind of difficult words Jesus says about like forsaking your family to follow him. Like it might be your your sexuality, your your sexual desires, your orientations. Like, you know, ev- all of us has to put something on the line, something, something we need to sacrifice something. And, um, and it's different for all of us. But I think, uh, you know, if, if you read this book, I think there's going to be something in it for everyone that, that challenges them the most. And, um, if, it, if it's not, if you're not uncomfortable reading this book, at least a few, in a few places, like <laughs> then that's not a good thing, but it's, I think it's different from everyone Yeah, for everyone. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. I've used up more of your time than I promised. So, uh, thank you for your time and thank you for answering yeah, some questions. No. Where can people get, what's the best place for people to get your book? Uh, I mean, probably Amazon is where most people get books these days. And <laughs> that's, I think that's probably the cheapest way to get it. Um, it, it. I think it's in Christian bookstores and Barnes and Noble and places too, or Crossways, the publisher. So you can go to Crossways website um, as and well. It, and if people want to find out more about your old books or about your writing or anything like that, it's brettmccracken.com, right? Yeah. Oh. Yep. It's, that's the blog. Excellent. Well, thanks again for your time. Yeah. Thank you, David. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.